Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this week I want to focus on something we all think about, we all deal with, but we don't often talk about. I want to focus on fear. Fear is universal. It's something that can hold us back, but also something that can guide us. It all depends on how you face it. I've talked a lot about fear on this podcast, and it's interesting because it's rarely something I've thought about going into an interview. It just sort of comes up, and it often leads to the best part of the conversation. This week, I want to take you through a few of my favorite episodes from Story Untold, and they all deal with fear in very different ways, whether that's putting fear aside as a sort of meditative practice, how fear can weave its way into speech and language, getting past fear and taking on expeditions, or fear in the midst of addiction and how that can spur recovery. We'll start with Shad, episode 51. Shad is a Juno and Peabody award-winning artist from London, Ontario. He's the host of the hugely popular Hip Hop Evolution series, the former host of Q on CBC Radio. He's also one of only two artists who have beaten Drake in the rap category at the Junos. Shad has a line in one of his songs that stuck with me for years. It's called Remember to Remember. And he says, we're fighting fear and pride for the love within us. And that's something I've thought about often. Something I've wanted to talk to him about. Now, full disclosure here, Shad is my favorite MC. There are albums I like more than his. There are songs I like more, but no artist that I like more than Shad. We talk here about fear and pride and also about a few of his musical choices. How he thinks about comfort zones as a creative person. Here's Shad. You had talked about a goal being to be able to put fear and ego aside before you kind of get out the door. Um, And those are two really tough things to suppress or to uh, confront, Mm -hmm. say. How have you found that in, in your life? you know, as, as you continue along in different chapters of your career and different life stages to be able to continue to confront, I think, as you say, the imposter syndrome that never really goes away. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like that is to me, that is the work. Hmm. That's how I see it is like, that is the work because you acquire certain skills and like, those are there. So like, you know, all I've ever done really is rap. I can rap. Like, mm. that's cool. I can do that. If I just work at it, I can do it. If I sit down and write some raps, do a bunch of takes, like, I can do it. That's not the work. The work is I need to find something pure to give people. I need to find something. That's the best way to say it. I need to find something pure to give people. Mm. And I can't do that if I'm distracted by my self. And so that ends up to me being the work. That's every day. That's like the first thing I do, you know, when I wake up is try and put that stuff aside. Um, Cause that's how I can contribute. And that's what I want to contribute. Uh, and that becomes more and more clear to me. I think that was always there, but it's more and more clear to me, the older I get and the further along I get, you know, just the sense of like, I'm not going to be, I thought I wouldn't make more than one album. Okay, I've made more than one album, but I still know I won't be doing this forever. <laughs> okay. I, I won't be doing this forever yeah, yeah. still, you know? Okay, so maybe I'll make five. Maybe I'll make six, maybe I'll make seven. But I probably won't make 12, you know? Okay. So while I'm doing this, I want to give, I want to pass on something for real. So, And I think that's a natural thing that you just start to feel more and more. 
what are you doing when you are actively trying to, okay, put fear and ego aside? Yeah. yeah. What are your habits that you're doing that are, are helping in that? Yeah, that's like, that's a spiritual thing for me, mm. you know? So that ends up looking like what people would call prayer or meditation. You know, what it actually tangibly looks like for me is like, I type it out. Mm. Because it helps me focus. So it's, all, it's, like, it's like praying, but I type it out. Mm-hmm. And, but even more specifically, like part of that, what I'm typing out is, and this is like kind of just like my own little thing that I do, is like part of it is like gratitude. Mm-hmm. Part of it is um, writing down the things that happened in the last 24 hours because mm-hmm. it's amazing what we forget mm. simple facts of what happened and I try not to color them in any way mm-hmm. just like this is what happened these are good things that happened these are bad things that mm-hmm. happened also the fact of what I'm feeling this is how I feel mm-hmm. right now um and then I try to turn my mind towards like other people mm. and other things. So that's like, so that's, you know, really in detail what my, you know, spiritual practice looks like. So then I start to try and turn my mind to like, what are the people that I, the people that I care about? Who are they? What's going on with them? Mm. And then also what is my work and stuff like that. So then, then I try to like, go outward yeah are you writing these with the thought that you're going to go back and read these or is it just the act of writing it that that is the the end result in itself i try to go back and read it but i actually never i rarely ever do Mm. um it's a lot of it is like getting it out Mm -hmm. and uh sorting it out so uh yeah that's really kind of what it looks like for me i i try to do that every day 2016 Mm -hmm. you uh, come back into the music side of things. You put yeah. out your boy, Tony Braxton. Yeah. And this is interesting because it's a total departure from what anybody would have expected you to do mm-hmm. music-wise. Um, was there fear involved in that, in in going out on a limb and saying, you know, this is something I want to do? Yeah. I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but here I am anyway. Totally. Like that was again. So I actually started working on that in like sometime in 2014. So again, it was like, uh, that was my attitude at the time was like, I want to try something different, try something that I don't know if I'm good at, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I took singing lessons. I never take any musical lessons before. And that's, that was vulnerable and new and like a learning. Um, but also like, yeah, like, I liked that, though. I wanted that. I wanted that kind of, like, I want to feel a bit of fear. I want to feel a little bit like, I don't know, I don't know if this is right, but I, I feel it, and I need to try something new. I need to explore right now, and, and I feel like that's kind of an artist's responsibility, too, you know, is to do that, because a lot of people don't get to do that. You know, they don't get to take chances. And so I feel like if we don't take chances, no one will take chances. So that also felt like a bit of a responsibility, too, to, like, 
I got to try something new. I got to experiment. I got to, you know, do something different. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm really proud of that album and, you know, how hard we worked on it and also like what it is, you know, it's, I like it. It's like, it's, it's sweet and naive and like, I like it. Yeah. Uh, was that the plan going into it was just to, to put a little bit of fear back into you, like a little bit of the butterflies in the stomach kind of thing? I, th- I think so. And to just to try and do something very genuine. Uh, I also like doing, I also just like doing things that are different. Like as a entertainer, hmm. I think part of me is like, I want to surprise always. I want to surprise like, you know, um, and so, but yes, from a, on a per, from a personal level, yeah, I, I want to be a learner again. I want to be vulnerable again. I want to, yeah, hmm. yeah. You're working on new music. You have new music to share. Yeah. Um, what are the things that have been percolating in your mind yeah. uh, that's, that's going to end up in this music? Yeah, so this album that I just finished, it's, uh, it's a concept album. It's uh, based on a story that actually kind of occurred to me like many years ago, but this was an opportunity to make it come to life and it felt really relevant right now. Um, and basically, it's, the album's called The Short Story About a War and it's the story of this war in this fictional desert planet that kind of occurred to, to my mind. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in that story that to me are parallels to our world politically, economically, but also our interior worlds and the kind of turmoil that we live with. Um, That being said, I tried to make sure there are moments of hope and joy in it too. Uh, There's a, yeah, without getting too far into it, the story, you know, has things in it that allow for that so yeah man so like it's a lot it's it's like it's like a dense album but i tried to make it exciting and i tried to make sure that there's um i'm, I'm always looking for hope you know mm-hmm. so there's some of that too but yeah man there's there's a lot there's a lot in there i like that looking for hope in complicated times. I think there's something admirable about that, something worth practicing. The next story I want to take you to is Richard Holmes, episode 21. Richard's a friend of mine. I've known him for years. We were probably 15, 16 when we met. He's a practicing speech-language pathologist and before that, a professional mountain biker. But there was one thing that bothered him, his stutter. And he talked about all the ways he would try to hide it. This remains one of my all-time favorite conversations, not just because he's a friend, but because of the things we get into. Here it is. There's this interesting idea of disclosure when you meet somebody, and I thought that was really interesting, one thing that you've been talking about. What is the idea behind introducing yourself right from the bat in this way? Yeah, so I think a lot of the behaviors that stuttering is associated with are not necessarily the stuttering itself, but the extent people go through to make sure they don't stutter. And that's kind of a, it seems it's sort of counterintuitive, but that's where the problem lies, is that reaction of trying to avoid stuttering. And actually people have compared it to um, like, come, 
hang out in that once you sort of just share this part of yourself, there's sort of a feeling of relief that's associated with that. So instead of when you're meeting somebody, you're not trying to hide this part of yourself the whole time. That's already put on the table, so you can just sort of be yourself and not have all that worry associated with your speech. Take me back to uh, when did it first become apparent to you that the way you talked was different than the way your parents talked or the way your classmates talked? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that I don't have a very clear memory of that's the first moment that kind of thing happened. But I there's sort of like a overlooming feeling of like anxiety when it comes to communication. So like the idea, I never, like if I went to a friend's house or something, even when I was really young and like I met their parents and we would have a, have a, have a meal or something, I just associate that with this feeling of trying to either avoid having to be in that situation or all the things I would do to change up the words I was going to say, sort of like when they were going around introducing ourselves at a table, you know, spontaneously going to the washroom so I wouldn't have to introduce myself and just I always associated those social situations with people I don't know with this constant feeling of trying to avoid avoidance and hiding and sort of going on what you said I think the hardest part for people who stutter or I mean at least I can speak for myself is that it's that first time interacting with somebody that's the hardest or like let's say until you really got to know them because like you're describing at first it's perceptually something that stands out for the person. You hear fluent speech all day long, and then you meet one person who's hers, and of course that's going to be something that stands out strongly. But like you said, it's amazing that once we sort of know that's how someone speaks, we just sort of, in a way, just like almost smoothen it out in our in our mind. So we that we're talking to them, we aren't even hearing it. We're just hearing what, what they're trying to say, not how they're saying it. But what that means is that that moment when you have to meet somebody, they generally don't have a great reaction. And that you're able to see on their face when you're talking to them that they're responding to how you're saying it and not what it is you are saying. So I guess as a child, when you're you know changing schools uh, every few years from like elementary schools, and I, I changed schools quite a bit, it was just meeting new friends was always this feeling of anxiety around communication. So I don't have a particular moment when I remember noticing I stuttered or spoke differently than others. It was more just I never thought of communication as an easy thing. Like I, I can imagine, or at least I never thought it was as easy as I think some other people probably would if they didn't have this challenge. A whole lot of things that I want to jump on in that. Yeah. Uh, first of all, really interesting that... That sounds a lot of parallels to social anxiety uh, around being in a situation and trying to almost make yourself invisible or get out of moments when people are going to be focusing their attention on you. Is that Was that attention uncomfortable to you at the time to have people looking and, and listening to you? Yes, I think um, l- listening to my speech as as it would be naturally 100% and actually what you said uh about how you sort of always knew I I I, I like to I always like to joke around and stuff like that I think I knew the attention would be on me 
So if I made the attention on something that wasn't my speech and maybe my jokes or that I was being like, you know, in school, maybe like being a bit of a class clown or something. I thought about this the other day that, you know, you've met other people who are the class clown or, or joke around. So you are, you have a pretty good understanding of how people will respond to that. But growing up, I didn't know anybody else who stuttered. So it's kind of this unknown that you don't know how people will respond to you if you really do just speak the way that would come out naturally. So you almost rely on other things to almost distract people from that. You, at some point, find mountain biking Mm -hmm. and biking uh, to be an outlet for you Mm -hmm. as you were going through school, looking for a place that felt like you'd fit in or felt, you know, at home to you. And you find this. Where did you stumble across it and, and what did it give to you? I honestly think like mountain biking and the experiences I had were the best things that could have really possibly happened that happened to me. I think what was very fortunate is I sort of got into it at a fairly young age. Like I think I like went to my first contest when I was twelve and I'd been like really practicing up until then and then like I got my first sponsor at age at age 13 and I just think I mean first I tried really 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 hard and 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 like probably practiced just so much more than I would have otherwise because that was one thing I felt in control of I knew I could go out and practice all my tricks over and over and over again but I didn't know what to do when it came to like I described school or my speech so this was sort of one thing I knew what I could do and, and I knew that if I practiced I could improve so I just practiced <laughs> non-stop but more what I said and the reason I brought up the thing about getting sponsored as a young age was it was such a just validating feeling where like at school I w- wasn't doing well all day whenever I spoke people had these reactions but like if I had these companies telling me that they thought I was you know that they wanted to give <laughs> they wanted to g- give me their products for free and all that it was just such like a that was the one form of self-confidence I had and I think I was able to you know when I went to university able to apply that same confidence to, to university but if I never learned that sort of association between doing really hard work and then having the reward and then when you you are rewarded you're able to you know like have these like sponsorships and stuff that was such an important association in my life because with my speech in school, I wasn't, I wasn't having any anywhere else. That was a career option for you at one point. The career path for you was to, you were going to make a living being a, a mountain bike. Uh, I, what, mountain biker, is that the right yeah. word? Well, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so you're going to make a living in mountain biking. Mm-hmm. And you moved out west for it. Tell me about that time period, how old you were, uh, where you were. And what you were doing. Yeah, so right after high school at age 17, I, I, I moved to British Columbia. And so so Martin and I are both from Ontario. So you can imagine mountain biking in a place without mountains isn't quite as popular. Whereas it's like a massive sport in, in British Columbia. And like really, that that's where all the contests are and stuff. So that was the only place to go. That was my plan all through high school. And I really was able to do everything I, I wanted to do out there. I had like really sort of worked my way in, um, had, some, had, some, had some awesome 
sponsors. Um, I, I, I was able to, you know, make a, make a living entire, entirely off that. And it was, it was really, really fantastic. But what actually sort of brought me back home the first time was that when I was out there and, you know, living on my own, all of a sudden, you know, having to come completely like <laughs> sort of fend for myself and like sort of at age 18, sort of doing all that on my own, my speech came, a, it was definitely the worst that it's, it has ever, it has ever been. And I think it was just, um, yeah, the combination of just so many more sort of stresses in in my life and just like, you know, like I was talking about, everyone I was speaking to was was somebody I would have to, that didn't have any idea about my stuttering. So it was just a lot of, a lot of stresses sort of in that regard. Um, so when you're saying that, the people that you're speaking to, I mean, these are people who are meeting you at races or these are like kids coming out to watch you race or who are, who are you talking to? It's just, just because you're in a new province, basically? Yeah, basically. So like, and I mean, yeah, even just that, that like they didn't have any friends out there who I hadn't known for a while. So, and, but even a lot of things like where I was finding it more challenging is like, so I was still at that point using all the very like avoidance behaviors. So like, <laughs> it was kind of humorous. I remember like, like a big part is doing lots of, lots of networking type things. So like I would be like after a contest or something, you would be speaking to like the the managers of companies and and speaking to these different people. And I found myself a couple times want like you want to you want to you know advertise yourself as much as you can. And I would give people a a, a name I thought was easier to. Hey, and that really speaks to that's just like I, I think about that now. I think that's absolutely hilarious that I would rather this person not remember who I am, <laughs> even though I'm trying to do this as a act as a career, yeah, than just for them to hear me stutter. And that's just like sort of thinking about that now. That's really sort of speaks to where my head was at. That I was like trying to network and like you know open up as many business um opportunities as i could but at the same time i would do anything for them to not hear me (laughs) that's one of the best examples i think of how fear can get in our way but it doesn't have to at least that's the message of this next guest episode 12 It wasn't that long ago that Amy Tunstall was a prisoner to her own bed. That's how she described the depression and anxiety she faced. Now, since then, she's traveled over 17,000 kilometers around the globe, hiking and biking to raise funds for mental health. Amy was five years old when she lost her dad to suicide. It hit hard for years. But things changed with a bike ride across Canada. She finished that ride and decided she wanted to bike across New Zealand, then South America too, then hike the Bruce Trail. Fear could have stopped her from doing any of those things, and in other years it might have, but not anymore. Here's Amy Tunstall. What has that been like for you in grappling with anxiety and depression and in coming to find yourself in that experience? 
So with my very first two journeys, it was a lot about finding myself. For a long time, I was unhappy in my everyday living. I knew things needed to change. I didn't like talking about it because it had already happened in my family, and I had seen just how how much it can affect one's family. So I, I kept it a secret for a very, very, very long time. And when I first started my bike trip, I was like, oh shit, you know, like, this affects me too. And I was lucky because I found a way to cope and to deal with it through the outdoors, through expeditions, cycling, just really staying healthy and active. But I always have my ups and downs. Like, mental health is, it, you don't just get over it. You're constantly dealing with it. You're constantly trying to figure out, you know, how to be normal, how to feel normal. And for myself, it's been quite the journey with that. So one of the major differences was my family actually telling me that, you know, I should probably get some help. I kept breaking down constantly. And it's hard on a family because you usually tend to lash out at the people you love the most. They're the ones who see you in this state. It gets to a point where, like, I wasn't leaving my room for almost two weeks where I was basically a prisoner to my bed and into my home, and that's no way to live your life, but I can be here and say that things can change and they can get better. Fast forward along the bike ride in Canada, you are in New Brunswick, and there's a man that you meet along the way, and he sees you, and he sees your bike, and he starts to tear up. Yeah. Uh, tell me that story and the effect that that had on you. That moment really put things into perspective for me and kind of why I keep continuing to do these treks and these journeys. So I was in New Brunswick at a gas station and I just pulled in and this man who was probably in his 50s, early 60s, came up to me and was almost in tears. And he said that I was living his dream. And that whole day cycling, I got to think about it. And I'm like, I don't want to get to the point in life where I continue to think I wish I would have. That just really put things into perspective for me, that people don't go out there and live out these ideas that they have in their head. And just seeing his reaction and how this had always been a thought in his mind really impacted me. I don't know what it was exactly, but it just affected me in how I started thinking about life. There's a, a quote that you've shared in the past, and it's a great one. It says, fear defeats more people than anything else in this world. Tell me about that realization for you. I think it comes back to that time in New Brunswick where that guy came up to me in tears. And because I spent a lot of time thinking about it, why? didn't he accomplish this? Like, why didn't he go out and do it if he wanted to do it so much? And I think the biggest thing that holds us back in life is fear. Fear of what other people are going to think. Fear that we're not going to make ends meet. We have so much fear built up inside of us. And yeah, it's just that thing that holds us back. Because what if something goes wrong? What if I don't make it? Or what if I fail? What if there's so many what ifs we tell ourselves that we never end up doing that thing. So for me, that quote is huge because if I let fear get the best of me, then I would have never done the things that I've done. 
you know, thinking about the path that you've taken in life, biking across Canada, biking across New Zealand, biking across South America, to have the confidence to be able to hike 900 kilometers this fall, and to have the confidence to do all of these things and to believe in yourself. How do you think your dad would see the person that you are today? Oh, I I think my dad would be very proud of who I am and who I've become. He is the reason why I love the outdoors. I remember us being young and he'd always have me on the boat and he's really the one who introduced me to outdoors and I'm very thankful for it. I think that without having that as a child, I probably wouldn't be experiencing life in this way. So I hope he's proud. Well, I think he's proud. And that's all I can ask for. I had a great conversation with Amy. She's been on the podcast a second time as well, episode 45. The last conversation I want to share might be my favorite of all on the podcast. It has to do with fear and how it can be a motivator, too. Charlie Engel, episode 18, an all-time classic guest. Charlie is not like most people. For one thing, he's run across the Sahara Desert. I mean, come on. That became a, a documentary narrated by Matt Damon. He's an ultramarathon runner who's summited volcanoes, he's swam with crocodiles, and served a stint in federal prison. But before that, he had to overcome a drug and alcohol addiction. It changed his life. Here's Charlie Engel. Before I know it, they come back, and it wasn't powder, it was crack. And I'm, I, like, absolutely refused to do it. I was like, no, I, I you know, there's no way... I'm going to do that. I, you know, I always swore that I wouldn't. And, you know, I remember that moment, you know, very clearly. I mean, I, as I was saying, there's no way I'll ever do this. I don't want that. I already knew I was going to, you know, that, mm -hmm. that addict in the back of my mind was already taking control and saying, you know, just as one time, just as one time, because, you know, addicts are suckers for their inner addict. You know, that's the voice that gets listened to. And, you know, it's a very hard voice to resist. And so I, you know, on that particular occasion, I took my first hits of crack and and it's pretty much all I thought about for the next couple of years. So you mentioned uh, at the time you're doing uh, you know, paintless dent repair and the money is good from it. And, and the danger that comes with that, with there's money to spend uh, for somebody with an addiction you know, this is a very dangerous combination. How many times did you try to quit before it stuck for you? Well, sadly, I had a I had a very not funny joke. I was like, man, I can quit anytime. Quitting is easy. I've done it a hundred times. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, which obviously is is moronic if you think about it. And you know, so to answer your question, clearly though, I tried to quit. I really tried to quit probably 20 times before before it finally stuck. One of those times was in a full-blown 28-day treatment center and you know, I made it through that program and I learned a lot. I learned a tremendous amount. I also knew deep down that my inner addict was saying this isn't the end, you know, mm -hmm. this is just a this is just a break. 
you know, and, and you got to get this under control and everything will be okay later. And, you know, I, I basically treated that time like, um, like a graduation almost. So I treated that 28 days like, like I would taking on a, a hundred miler today. You know, I, I'm like, I wanted to be the best addict in treatment. I want to mm-hmm. ace the test. I wanted to say the right things. I wanted to mend the right fences. I wanted to do all these things because I wanted my family to be happy and I wanted to be able to get a job. And I was I just wasn't ready though to to really take command of this idea that I wanted to live a sober life. So after that six months of sobriety, that was when I really went just crazy and and was lucky to survive really the next year and a half what was what was that bottom for you that that rock bottom when i did finally quit yeah yeah um it's pretty simple actually my first son brett was born in uh, may of 1992 and i was really fighting hard to stay sober at that point but i you know, I knew that I didn't want, I, I grew up in a household where, you know, with my dad, where, you know, alcohol was a very present part of our lives and, you know, not in a good way. And I knew I didn't want my kids to grow up in that kind of atmosphere. So I basically just took it for granted. I said, you know what, that's it. I'm done. No way that I'm going to do any more drugs after the birth of my son. And so sure enough, he's born and you know, I, I'm sticking to this commitment, white knuckling it though. I'm not actually going, doing any treatment. I'm not doing anything. I'm just not using drugs. And, um, my son's mom, my wife at the time, and, and my son came to visit me a couple of months after he was born. I was working on the road in Wichita, Kansas, and they came to visit and it was one of the best weeks of my life. You know, I had this little tiny baby, this two-month-old tiny little thing, and it was the most love I'd ever felt in my life. And I had feelings I had no idea that I was capable of. And after that week, I took them to the airport and dropped them off and inexplicably drove straight to the hood and spent the next six days smoking crack and drinking and, and killing myself. And... It was at the end of that binge, you know, watching the police go through my car and bullet holes in my car and, and, you know, understanding that those bullet holes were put there by somebody trying to shoot me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it sounds crazy to say it this way, but it really was like one of those moments like, huh. You know, this seems like a pretty good time to quit, (laughs) you know, and of course it wasn't that simple, but it. Here's the thing. Nobody else could save me. You know, I thought my son could actually be my savior. I thought he could stop me from being a drug addict. And the the final dose of reality of, of understanding that there was no one but me that could actually make that happen is is why it all changed. Hmm. Is that a, that a scary moment thinking that you might not be around to to see your son grow up and absolutely. seeing those bullet holes in your car yeah absolutely no i i mean i i look as an addict and any addict i don't want to speak for other addicts i shouldn't i shouldn't say that but my experience is most other addicts have experienced times when 
you know, they were willing to die for their addiction. Like they reached a point where they just simply didn't give a shit. And dying was just a reality. Not that they wanted to die, although Mm -hmm. I will say it's a fine line. You know, there were times and certainly moments, instances where I was at such a low place that, you know, if you asked me in that moment if I wanted to die, I probably would have said yes. But, you know, I think it just is that moment for me made me realize that, you know, my death was imminent. It was not some abstract thing floating around out there that might or might not happen. This was real. And either the drugs or another person were going to end my life. And if I didn't want that to be the case, then I better get my act together. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. These are just a few of the conversations I've had about fear on the podcast. I imagine there will be a part two in the weeks to come. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.